As I mentioned, I was out last week with the flu. I feel a whole lot better as far as feeling, uh, but the coughing uh, is still a, a, an issue. And from what everybody's telling me, uh, just expect that for another couple, three weeks. So if I have to stop and get a drink, I hope you will uh, forgive me. And uh, if, uh, hopefully it will not be too distracting uh, in our worship services this morning. I'd invite your attention this morning to the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. Uh, we'll read a couple passages from Genesis chapter 2, and then we'll also read uh, a few verses from Genesis chapter 3. Two weeks ago, again, I was absent last Sunday with the flu, but two weeks ago we uh, entitled the sermon, The Battle for Foundational Truths. The found, uh, Battle for Foundational Truths. And what we've been looking at for the last few Sunday mornings, and we'll continue to look at for a while, is the idea that it has become a matter of life and death. Uh, and, and what we talked about a, a few weeks ago was that uh, we have got to recommit ourselves to looking externally and reaching out externally and, and understanding that Christ did not call us just to hold up in a church and kind of hunker down and, and wait for his return, but he told us to go out into the field. And he told us to go out and to deliver the message. And each and every one of us are to be proclaimers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need that compassion. We need that burden. We need to see people who are suffering and dying and going to hell who need to hear that Jesus loved them enough that he died on the cross for their sins. We were always so busy in years past in reaching out to the lost world and we decided uh, somewhere down the road in my lifetime we decided that the idea of visitation no longer works and I agree with that but we never replaced it with anything. We stopped doing our visiting because we said it didn't work and in truth it does not. You cannot just show up unannounced and barge in on somebody but the point still remains have we asked God what shall we do in its place and ask him to lead us and open the doors? What are we doing in its place? We also understood the second part of this that's made it a matter of life and death. Not only the lack of activity on our part to reach the world, but also the understanding that our world is culturally different now than it was 20 years ago. And so that changes not the message, for the word of God will abide forever. Jesus said heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will remain forever. It doesn't change the message, but we must understand that people, the, that society of 20 years ago had a different foundational base than they do now. And that's why we're studying the idea of the battle of foundational truths in this morning part two. If you will read with me in Genesis chapter two, beginning in verse 15, and the Lord God took the man and he put him into the garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat. If you mark your Bible, mark those statement, that statement. We're going to really... Pay a lot of attention to that. What did Jesus say? Jesus said, of every single tree in this garden you may eat of. Except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You shall not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof, you will surely die. 
And it says surely die because the Hebrew word for dying is repeated there. We would literally translate that today as if you eat of that fruit, dying you will die. One of them is a continual process and one is an instantaneous. There are two deaths that are spoken of in Genesis. There is the physical death by which our bodies grow old, our bodies wear out, and eventually our physical life ends. But there is also the spiritual death that will now happen instantaneously because you have defied God's law and immediately, spiritually, you are dead or separated from him. Skip down to chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the eyes of... It skipped one on me. Hang on just a second, I'm sorry. And the serpent said unto the woman, You shall not surely die, for God doth know that in the day you eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat also. And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together, and made themselves aprons. Years ago... Uh, a well-known author, writer, you've probably heard uh, this particular uh, part of what he wrote, but I know you're familiar with his names. C.S. Lewis wrote what was called the trilemma. Now, many of us are familiar, more familiar with the word dilemma. I, I'm in a dilemma. What do I do? Uh, in other words, I've got two choices here, and I'm not sure which one I need to make. I can go this way or I can go this way. A trilemma would be one that you would have three options, and he wrote of a very famous trilemma, and I'm not going to read the whole article to you, but what he was trying to do is tear down this notion that Jesus was a great moral teacher. He said, you cannot leave Jesus at that level for what he taught and for what he said and, what he, and how he lived, you have got to make one of these three choices. Either Jesus was a liar, or he was a lunatic, or he is Lord. C.S. Lewis said, when you look at what he did, you either have got to come to one of these three options. Either he's a liar... Or he's crazy on the same, and he said this in this, on the same level as a man that would go out and tell you I'm nothing more than a poached egg. <laughs> so either he is a liar, he is a raving lunatic, or he is what he said, he is Lord. Some have come behind C.S. Lewis now and have wrote that perhaps we would have to add a fourth to that, and that would be that he is legend. He is just a legend, a myth. And he's not even really real. This was something that was used a lot among Christian people. They, they, they would use C.S. Lewis's dilemma or trilemma and they'd say, listen, you, when you study his life, when you read the Gospels and you see what he did, you have got to draw one of these three conclusions. And of course, it would naturally follow then that they would say, well, to, Jesus is not a liar. 
and he's not a lunatic. So if he either has to be a liar or a lunatic or Lord, and he's not a liar or a lunatic, then what is he? Well, then he obviously must be Lord. And so many people would use that. But you see, we live in a different world now. Let me share an article that was written, and I will read this one. It's a very short article, but uh, an article that was written by a youth worker. This particular youth worker was working with his teens in his church, and he was referring to this, this trilemma that C.S. Lewis wrote about. And it was the summer between uh, his college and going to seminary, and, and he was at a particular uh, family gathering, and they sat down at the dinner table to eat a meal, and the topic of discussion while they sat around the dining room table came, uh, turned to the Christian faith. And so Tony began to share this trilemma realizing that there were some seated at the table that did not believe what he believed about the word of God about God and about Christ and so Tony began to share and he used this trilemma as the discussion continued on he made the statement he said either you have got to accept him as a liar a lunatic or a lord I don't believe him to be a liar I don't believe him to be a lunatic, so therefore he must be Lord. One of the young people sitting at the dining room table said this, and I, again, I want to stress the idea it was a young person, teenager, said this. I believe that for you, he is Lord. Now, there's a subtle difference in that statement than what you might think. This young person didn't say, I believe him Lord. This young person said, I believe to you. He is Lord. And upon making that statement, Tony said, well, no, wait a minute, wait a minute. You're, you're not understanding me. He is not just Lord to me, but he is Lord to all creation. And this young person said, well, I believe to you he is the Lord of all creation. And Tony said, you're not understanding me. What I'm telling you is, is that this Jesus, he is either a liar or he's a lunatic or he is the Lord of creation, of all creation, over everyone. And this young person looked at him stone cold in the eye and said, I believe that to you he is the Lord of all creation for everyone. To you. If that's what you want to believe and that's what you want to accept, then so be it. But just because you believe it and you accept it doesn't mean that it is true or that it has any bearing on my life. There are so many indicators that tell us that foundational truths are eroding away. I look at my grandkids from time to time, and I don't let them see me do this, but I, I weep, I cry because of the world that they're going to grow up in. Because the world in which we are living in is a world that has allowed the foundation, just the, the common truths and, and, and common practices and just foundational cornerstones of life have been eroded away over a period of time. And I'm telling you that when you erode away foundational truths that a country is going to fall. Read the history of the Roman Empire. Read the history of other countries and other kingdoms it it makes perfect sense 
If you have a house and it's built on a foundation and over time because of the water, that foundation erodes away, what's going to happen to the house? It's going to fall. It cannot stand if it does not stand on a solid, firm foundation. Whether our world wants to accept it, whether society wants to accept it, matters not. The principles of God's Word are a solid foundation. And without building upon it, everything will fall. Not because Jeff Chrysler said so, but because Jesus said so. Do you remember what Jesus said as he came to the end of his Sermon on the Mount? We as kids used to sing it all the time. Do you remember? The wise man what? He built his house upon the rock. The foolish man built his house upon the sand. This is not just some Sunday school teacher thinking of a, of a cute little song that we can sing. These are the words of Jesus. Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount and he said, here are my teachings. Here are the principles of, of life. Here is what it, all, what it all comes down to. He said, the wise man will hear these things and will build his house upon these things. And he said, the winds and the waves are going to come and they're going to beat and they're going to beat on that house, but that house will stand. He said, the foolish man is going to hear these things and say, ah, I'm going to build my house on the money. I'm going to build my house on power. I'm going to build my house on this, on pleasures. I'm going to build my house on me being and so forth. And he said, if you reject this foundation, you build your house on the sand. The winds come, the rain comes, and it beats on the house, and it beats on the house until he says it falls flat. I fear sometimes that I come across as just this pessimist that wants to go back 25 years and freeze in time. And there's a lot of truth to that, to be honest with you. But everywhere I look, the indications are there that our society at its foundational truth is eroding away. For our Henderson people, y'all forgive me. Uh, I was called several months ago, as you know, by OBU, wanting to know if I could come do their, their basketball books, keep the official scorebook. And so I said, yeah, I'll be glad to help you. So I've been doing that. And I've noticed that on a couple of different occasions, the referees have come, and there's been on two different groups, there's been at least one of them that was military. And we still begin each game with the playing in the National Anthem. And I've noticed these two men, and, and, and every time the National Anthem begins playing, they are at perfect attention. And whenever the National Anthem ends, they salute the flag that's hanging on one end. But I look around. I look around, and I've not, I'm thankful for this. I've not seen any of them kneeling. But I'm seeing a lot of them that don't know to take their hat off. And I'm seeing a vast majority of college kids that don't even know to put their hand over their heart. They don't know that. I'll ask you, when you were a kid in elementary, those of you that are at least 50-something years old, when you were a kid in elementary, if you're at least 50 years old, did, did you have to be told when it came to the Pledge of Allegiance or the National Anthem to put your hand over your heart? Did you have to be told to take your hat off? Did you have to be told to stand? These are things that we just knew. 
These are part of the foundational uh, truths and foundational practices that are just slowly eroding away. And, and I'm ta- I know I'm talking about things on a, on a national thing right now and not so much spiritual plane, but the point's still being made that as we continue to erode away and weaken and wash away uh, some of these foundational things, as a nation, we're going to see our nation suffer. But the same is true in the spiritual sense as well. I know I'm old school. I know I'm old-fashioned. I, I, I probably ought to be put out to pasture with some of my ideologies and philosophies and thinkings. But that's it. They're not mine. They're the Word of God's. I have minute books from churches from way back where in business meetings members would be brought up for exclusion because they were found out to be playing with a deck of cards the night before. Now, I'm not saying we ought to do that. That's not what I'm saying. If, it, you know, if, if you want to go home and play a game of hearts or spades or go fish or whatever, I, I, go, I don't care. And the Bible doesn't say you can't do that. But my point is, can you not see how over years we have just kept eroding away and chipping away? We quit preaching about divorce. We quit preaching about young people saving themselves for their future husband and wife. We've quit preaching and teaching about how kids ought to be uh, respectful and, and kids ought to be taught how to honor their mother and their father. We've quit preaching, we've quit teaching on, on church discipline and on, on the importance of being faithful to the Lord's house and on all of these different subjects and we just keep eroding and eroding and eroding away and now we are faced with a generation that does not know the foundational truths of God and of man and of sin. And that's why we can't go out there with the same gospel message that we went out with years ago and expect that they're going to accept Christ because they don't have those foundational truths. As I've shared with you before, when I was a kid, even my lost friends, when you said the word God, they knew exactly what you were talking about. They were talking about the God of heaven. There was no other, there was no other idea to ever come around. When you talked about sin, they understood what sin was. They knew they were sinners. When you talked about heaven and hell, when you talked about some of these foundational truths, that generation had that, that platform from which to build. Now you say, God, and you better define them. If you talk about sin... You've got to lay the foundation for that. We must understand that the generation that responded to Billy Graham years ago is no longer here. And if Billy Graham was still here to do the things that he did years ago, he would not have had the same success now that he did then if he was going to continue to preach the message as he did. And it's not because the message is weak. It's not because the Word of God has failed. It's because of the foundation, that, that building block, that, that platform upon which society is now built has changed drastically from that day. They don't. They don't know. They have no idea. 
as we go back to the book of Genesis, and I don't know that I'll get all the way through all my notes this morning because Brother David told me I was too long-winded a couple weeks ago. Anyway, David Tate, not David Gardner, don't get mad at him. You get mad at David Tate if you want to. He told me, he said, yeah, you got a little too long-winded a couple weeks ago, so I'll try to find a place to stop or, or try to hurry through. But when you look at the book of Genesis, and, and, and you think, well, why would you go to the book of Genesis to begin to lead people to Christ? Because it is in the book of Genesis that the foundation is laid of what they will need before they can ever accept Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. The book of Genesis begins before there was a heaven, before there was an earth, before there was a humanity, before there was angels, there was God. And the book of Genesis reveals to us that there wasn't uh, one of about 20 gods that were floating around out there and you could pick and choose. The book of Genesis lays the foundational truth, a foundational truth that was accepted by just about every American 25 years ago, a foundational truth that there is one God. That God exists in three personages. They're not three gods. It's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. There is a trinity, but there is one God, and there's not a plethora from which you can choose. And the book of Genesis lays that foundation. When man was put on the earth, Baal did not come visit with him every day. Ashtaroth did not come and visit. Astarte did not come and visit. Muhammad did not come and visit. Confucius did not come and visit. And any other of the other gods, because they are not gods. There is one God, and that God loved Adam and Eve so much that he came every day and he fellowshiped with them. One God who is the creator. One God who said, let there be, and there was, and when it came to be, God said, it's good. It is good. I get asked all the time, do you really believe in God? You better, you better know I do. Well, how can you believe in a God who is everything you claim God to be? Please listen to this. If you don't get nothing else today, please get this for me. How can you claim to believe in a God that is all that you claim God to be, and yet our world is the mess that it's in? I, I pray. I pray and, and would love to see our church do more to, to show uh, force, first responders and, and, and the, the police force and state troopers and sheriffs and everything. Show them how much we love them and support them and how much we pray for them. Because I have talked with many of them that question God's existence because of what they see in humanity. How can God exist when I have to go and investigate when some father has done this to his son or daughter? And I have to keep telling them, God didn't fail. Humanity failed. That kid was molested not because God, but because of the sinful nature of mankind. 
Don't put the blame on God for the ills of this world. For had Adam and Eve followed the Creator's words in Genesis chapter 3 or chapter 2, we wouldn't have kids being molested by their parents. The Creator, God, the only Creator. There is no Big Bang other than maybe a sitcom that you enjoy watching and laughing from time to time. But there is no big bang that explains how our universe came into existence. You cannot create a, a, a blow-up, an explosion, and out of the chaos of explosion, perfect order comes. It will not work. Never has, never will. You can't bring order out of chaos. A ordered universe says that there is an ordered creator. Plain and simple. And the book of Genesis sets that foundation. And you've heard me say this a thousand times, and if you'll let me stay here as your pastor, you're going to hear it at least another thousand times. It really doesn't matter whether society believes it or not because it's true. It doesn't matter as far as the effect on its truthfulness. The Bible reveals that the foundational truth about God is that he's creator. It also reveals that he is a designer. You see, in the, in the Bible, in Genesis where we read, it, let us make man in our image. And then in the first verse that we read in verse 15 of chapter 2, he comes and he places man. He's created the garden, he's created the world, and he set man there, and he is the designer. And he says, listen, you can eat of all of the trees. Have you ever noticed how Satan got all this really started? Go back and look at chapter three, uh, chapter two. I'm sorry. The, the serpent. No, I was right first time. Chapter three. The serpent comes to Eve and says, "God said you can't eat of any of these trees." What did God really tell Eve? What did God tell Eve? I, I, I emphasized it for you. What did He tell her? You can eat of every tree in this garden. Every one of them you can eat, with the exception of one. What does Satan do? Satan says, you can't eat of all these trees, can you? Well, what's the difference? He's making Eve stop and think. I wonder why we can't eat of that tree. God told us that the day we eat of that tree, we'll know good and evil. Here's the fascinating thing. Guess what? Before they ate of that fruit, all they knew was good. They didn't know any evil. That's all they knew. Why would you want to know evil? <laughs> Why is there a desire to want to know evil and experience evil? Give me a choice between, put the dilemma before me, evil and good. I'm going to go good every time. I don't like evil. But he came and he said, Eve, God said, y'all can't eat of all these trees. Why is he holding back on you? Why is he, why is he keeping you at an arm's distance? i tell you why. Because God knows that today you eat of it, you now will know good and evil, and he was right. The moment they ate of that tree, they knew evil from that moment on. And that's proven by the fact that when God came the next time, what did they do? Hightailed it out of there. We want to hide from him. Why? We now understand good and we also understand evil. So we went and hid. They had all the good 
no evil. Satan comes and says, God said you can't have any of this. God knows that the day you do this, you'll know good and evil. And then notice what he says. And the day you eat of it, you shall be gods. And I know your King James Bible has a little g on that gods. But the Hebrew is Elohim, just as it is for the true God earlier. So here's what Satan says. Satan says, Eve, God said you can't eat of every tree. I wonder why that is. Why would God not let you eat of every tree instead of saying, man, God lets you eat of all of these hundreds of thousands of trees? He says, God won't let you eat of all these trees. Why? Eve says, well, the days that we eat of it, we'll know good and evil and we'll die. We can't even touch it. I've heard a lot of people say, well, see, uh, there she told a lie. Well, if she told a lie or added to Scripture, she had already sinned. And the, the sin didn't happen until she ate of the fruit. So uh, God had said, stay away from it. Don't touch it. <laughs> it's kind of like a kid, you know. You have to really stress. Uh, not only, just don't touch it. Don't go near it. And then Satan says, you won't die. God told you that because he wants to scare you. God knows that the day you eat of it, you will become just like him. You will be his equal. If you remember two weeks ago, that's exactly what Satan himself had tried. I will ascend. I will become like. I will, I will, I will replace God. He couldn't do it. So now he tells humanity, you can replace God, and they can't do it either. The foundation of who God is is that God is creator and he is the designer of life. It is not the United States Supreme Court that determines what is right and wrong. It is not you teachers in your classroom who determine what is right and what is wrong. It is not the principal who sits in his office and handles some of the discipline in a school that determines what is right and what is wrong. It is not the laws of our land. It is not the policemen. It is not this and that and the other. It always has been and forever shall it be God, the designer of life, that says this is right and this is wrong and you can't move them. They are set forever. He is the designer. And we find ourselves living in a world where people say, God has no right to say these things of me. Who is God to say that I must come to Him through Jesus Christ? Who is God to say that I'm a sinner? Who is God to say that I am lost? I'll tell you who God is. He is the creator, the giver of your life, and the designer of what's best for you. The foundational truth is laid forth in the book of Genesis that he is creator, he is designer, and he is beneficent. Again, I want to just remind you, I sat, as some of y'all have in years past, as a teenager sitting in church listening to my uncle and other pastors preach and literally having these thoughts in my mind from time to time. We can't do nothing to have any fun. 
Part of that's because of all the preaching of do's and do nots. Part of that's just looking at the faces of God's people a lot. We act like we can't have any fun, period. And that's such a danger. That's why I try to plan so many activities for us, for fellowship and to grow in the bonds of, of Christian love and Christian faith and Christian doctrine, but also just so that we understand you can be a born-again child of God and it's okay to crack a smile and grin and have some fun every now and then. Because here's the problem. When we don't ever enjoy the benefits from our beneficent Savior, then the only thing that remains is He is holding back on us. He wants us to go through life and not have an enjoyable life. He wants us to go through life and, and live by all these do's and these don'ts which sole purpose is to, to, to take away from the full experience of living. The only thing God is trying to do in designing our life and in the benefits that He gives us and the only thing that the do's and the don'ts take away from our life is that evil part, that bad part that we don't want anyway. He says, save yourself for your future husband and wife. Why? Because it's what's best for you. It's what's best for society. When you chip away at that, then all of a sudden you have seventh graders walking around Arkadelphia halls that are with child already in the seventh grade. And we wonder what's happening to our world when we have kids raising kids. We have chipped away at the foundations that make for a good society. God is not interested in making your life miserable. God is interested in showing you His benefits, His grace, His mercy, His love, and the do's and the don'ts whereby our life is bettered. Did not Jesus say, I came that you might have life and that you might have it what? More abundantly. I want you to have the best of life. And I don't care what society says. The best of life is never found in the bottom end of a bottle. The best of life is never found at the end of some drug use. The best of life is not found after some wild party and you don't even remember who you've been with or where you were the night before. That's not the best of life. We have got to understand that these principles, and, and I, I fear that there's probably, please don't misunderstand this, I, I fear that there may be some of our elderly that think, he's crazy. Everybody knows all this stuff. But that's the point. They used to. <laughs> but they don't anymore. They will look at you like they looked at their, their, their youth leader, Tony, and they will say, Tony, I accept that to you it means all of these things, but not necessarily to me. We have got to relay the foundation about God. He is creator. He is designer. And he's a good God. He is full of grace and mercy. And finally, he is judge. This is point one of a three-point sermon that I was going to do today. We're not going to do point two and three, so don't panic on me. We'll come back and catch him later. But he is judge. 
And that's why I said what I said earlier. I care that people don't accept this. But I don't care that they don't accept it in the fact that it might change this because when it's all said and done, society, every human being is going to stand before him one day. Open your Bibles to the Gospel of John chapter 12 and I'll read this and we'll get ready to close. All of humanity is going to stand before him one day. If you remember in the book of Revelation, the Bible tells us that as they stand at the great white throne, that the book of life was opened, and then there were other books opened. And I, I know that those of you that have been here five years that I've been here, you've heard me say this before, but there are some that's not, that haven't heard this. And it's always good to be reminded of this. But in John chapter 12, verse 48, we find out what some of those other books are. John chapter 12, verse 48. He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my words has one that judges him. Who is that one that judges him? The word that I have spoken. The same shall judge him in the last day. You combine chapter 12, verse 48 of the Gospel of John with the references in the book of, of, of Revelation, and here's what you're going to find out. One of these days, there's going to be a great white throne judgment, and all of the lost people are going to stand there before the one true God. And they may have believed in this God. They may have prayed to this God. They may have served that God. They may have served themselves as their own God. It really won't matter. They'll stand before the one true God. And God is going to open up the Lamb's book of life. And He's going to open up the book that records all the deeds of all the lost people. What they've done. And He's going to open up one more book. And according to John chapter 12 verse 48. That book is going to be this book. Not particularly this book. But the Word of God. And as mankind stands before God and says, wait a minute, God, before you send me to hell, I think there's been a mistake made. And he's going to say, no, nope, that's why the books are here. There's no mistake. Your name's not written in this Lamb's book of life, and it would have been had you believed in me. But, but Lord, I, I really was a pretty good person. And the Lord's going to say, well, listen to me. Here's this other book, and it records all that you've done. And no, you really weren't good. You may have been good compared to somebody else on the earth. You may be good in comparison to, to Dahmer or somebody else, but you're not good compared to Christ, who is the measuring stick of righteousness and goodness. And they say, well, I didn't know. I, I didn't know that there was only one God and there was only one way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I didn't know there was only one way. And Jesus is going to say, well... There it is. Right there it is. That's why I had this book written, and that's why I have protected it through generation after generation after generation. And although there have been those that have tried to remove its presence from the face of this earth, it still stands. And heaven will pass away, and earth will pass away. But my word will abide forever. You are without excuse. Which is what Paul wrote in the book of Romans. Oh, sinful man, you are without excuse. And then he will send that lost person's soul to hell.
Now I realize I'm looking at a congregation of mostly, at least, professed Christians, people who say they've been saved, and I, I can't look in your heart to know whether that's true or not. That's between you and God. You say, well, now this, this scene that you just painted for us, the great white throne, that's just for lost people. We won't be there, right? That's exactly right. We won't be at that judgment. But make no mistake about it, there is another judgment that we will be at. And we will have to stand before the righteous God and give an account why we have not had that compassion on lost people. Why we have not been busy about the master's service. Why years ago we said this don't work so we're going to stop it and we never replaced it. Not only did we never replace it, we never even got around to asking God what to replace it with. Lord, what, what can we do? What, what, what would you have us do? How can we... I'm not serious, y'all. Do we just simply fall on our face before God in this altar and say, God, how can we now reach society? Or do we, do we care? Do we care that society is reached? Let me ask you this. Slip your feet into the flip-flops of some five-year-old right now who is growing up in a world where many children of God have lost that compassion to reach them with the gospel. Father, we come to you today. As we stand very quietly now and prepare for this invitation time, Lord, nothing I've said this morning was said from the heart with an intent to hurt or to sit in judgment over. But Lord, I just am so afraid that we're not doing what you've asked us to do. And it's not going to change until we fall on our face before you and say, God, forgive us. God, show us, please help us to know what to do, how to reach these people. Open the doors, Father, that we might be able to share your love. God, I, I pray. I pray that you would help us as the old song we used to sing. That we might look away from the table, your table, where we're all gathered around you eating. And look out through the window pane and see that there is a world there that is ripe unto harvest, but there's nobody going out there. God, I'm not your spirit. I can't convict today. I pray that what I've shared has been what you've laid on my heart and that it will find lodging in my heart and in the heart of these, your people. God, we might make a difference in resetting the foundation of who you are. We ask these things in your precious name. Amen.